How does one conduct research for development? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Judith Mariscal in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. Judith Mariscal is founder and executive director of the Center of Digital Policy for Latin America in Mexico City, Mexico. She's also a research professor at the Center of Research and Teaching Economics, also known as CIDE. She's also in Mexico City. Judith is a very, very prestigious uh, academic with uh, visiting positions in institutions in the US, such as MIT, Columbia, and UT Austin. And uh, she's the author of eight books and dozens of articles, recipients of numerous grants and awards, and is a person who obtained her BA in economics at the Instituto Tecnológico Autónomo de México, ITAM, her MA in international economics and politics at CIDE, and her PhD in public policy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. It is truly a pleasure to have Professor Mariscal with us today. Judith, welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you, Pablo. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us, my friend. So, so Judith, tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become an academic? Um, I think there, there's a fundamental question when I was very young in deciding, you know, who you are, who you want to be. And, and, and my question was, um, do I want to contribute? I mean, I always knew, I didn't know the word back then, but, but development, economic, social development was what I was very interested in. Um, and, 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 and the question was, okay, should I go do something to be able to contribute? to communities to, you know, sort of put a grain of salt into, into this contribution? Or should I learn? Should I understand? And, and that was a big <laughs> dilemma, you know? And, and I never actually solved it. I mean, I was like, okay, let's start learning first. Um, I actually went into sociology initially because that's where I believed I would be able to understand society and, and what was going on. 
But I went into a specific university that was very technical, very prestigious at its moment, which was specialized in economics. And, and really I was sunk in, you know, if, if you wanted to do the serious thing, you had to study economics. Um, well, you know, back then having read a bit of Marx, <laughs> a bit of, you know, um, that's what I did. I finished economics and economics, the, the, my bachelor's degree was not what I expected. I, I, I actually think, you know, most people, and this works for most of people that go into the field and, and study it and really don't know what they're getting into until they get into it. And, and this was mostly mathematics. You know, what I studied was math with quantitative models. So I finished it just because of the sense of um, stubbornness, I guess, you know, I, can't, I have to finish it. Um, but I really wanted to find something more holistic. So getting to learn about international economics from the perspective of a very different um, teaching method and ideology, which was back then CIDE, with great, great professors, um, Luis Maida. You know, back then we had the, the people that were exiled from Southern America. So it's, um, you know, I can't say how much I learned from having this more holistic view. So to make it, you know, a long story, story short, um, both my, my my master's degree really educated me much more than my bachelor's. I mean, I, I, I don't want to talk badly about Itam. Actually, when I got to do my, my PhD in public policy and studied economics, I it was like, this is a piece of cake. I already know this. Um, it, it was, it's very, very competitive and very technical and very robust with what you learn. But it's one theory which is a neoclassical theory or what today, I guess it's called neoliberal. And I learned by being there that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, all the economic policies, micro, macro, uh, international trade happens within a political system. And, and really my way has been since then to study the political economy because this is where it happens. And looking again at development, and this was, um, well, back when, when state-owned uh, development was not the way to go, it was clear there was enough evidence that that was not the way to go. It's okay, so what's the role of government then in development? Um, the market should be able to work somehow, but we know that the market starts working from a status quo, you know, what they call the Pareto Optimo, which is optimal Pareto, which is really, you know, everybody's the same. Let's not take any, you know, there's no redistribution of income. Um, so I looked at technology and that was the first, that's when I got into technology back when the Asians were, were supporting 
um, their industrial, their technology sector, and we're growing. I'm sorry about that. Um, so that's what I what I did. Looked at at technology, and when I went into to Austin, I, I started looking at what was the role back then. Um, Lara Tyson, I believe, and and well Krugman, and you know there was this endogenous growth theory that had a lot to do with technology, with with how technology, how the government, how policy. Um, could, could really promote development through the powerful use of, of, of technology. And that's how I got into it. And, you know, it, back then it wasn't a big thing. So I was kind of lucky in a way um, to hit upon on telecommunications. I started like semiconductors and then went into telecommunications. And, and then it became something that just absorbed me completely because it, it was happening in front of me while I was studying. You know, the change was huge and the contribution of, of, of digital technologies as we call it, and ICTs, information technology, um, was just so pervasive and could be actually a, a very strong tool for, for development. So it, that's how it started and went on into how, why, you know, what are the mechanisms, what are the best practices, what actually it can do and what it cannot do. Um, you know, I think Castells made it very into this whole transformation, which it is, but it doesn't happen on in, it, in itself. And every time I learned something, it changed. So it really kept me on my feet. It really kept me on, okay, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time looking at economic regulation. I guess my, my background in economics was there <laughs> and looking at very technical aspects of, of spectrum allocation and interconnection rates and, and looking at concentration in the market. But then, um, then it became much more and much more interesting to look at it as, um, yes, pro-market, but pro-poor. And doing field work, and and now I'm, you know, very happy to say I made the right decision. If I could go back, maybe I would have done a bachelor's in political science. Um, but otherwise, I, I'm happy with these decisions, and still fascinating at what is happening in the world of technology. That's great. So let me, that's a very interesting trajectory. Let me ask you a number of questions in my head, but let me start with this one. So you compared your experience uh, as a master's student at CIDE in Mexico and your experience or with your experience as a doctoral student at the University of Texas, Austin. How would you characterize right, styles of teaching and expectations in the classroom, um, kinds of conversations, you know, anticipated career trajectories. How would you characterize sort of graduate education in Mexico in comparison to the States or in the States in comparison to Mexico? Very interesting question. First of all, 
there's a huge difference between teaching in Itam and Sile, because Itam was very scholastic. Uh, most of our professors were coming off the airplane from having studied their PhD in Chicago, you know, uh, Columbia, all these, all these different places, and they had a very set way of doing it, very much into many exams, many, a lot of pressure. Whereas at CIDE, people were more um, politically, I mean, they had PhDs, but, but they were more politically savvy and it was much more an interactive um, way of learning and less technical, which I actually, I mean, I, I'm, it's kind of embarrassing, but I, I finished my, my, my bachelor's degree and I didn't know what Bretton Woods was. I could make very nice curves <laughs> graphically, um, but we just didn't have the history. Um, so it was a very nice compliment. And, and when I um, got to Austin, I, I thought it was going to be much more, I thought it was going to be more like Itam, like and it really wasn't. It was also interactive. I mean, it was hard and specifically, I don't know your, your experience, but when you get to the qualifying exams are just terrible. <laughs> um, but what I saw is that, well, I was the first cohort in that um, PhD program. I was the only um, non-US, I was the only foreigner in the in the cohort. And what I saw interestingly is that for good and bad, the, the students, my, my colleagues were less knowledgeable about the specifics, about, about the technical stuff, about uh, concepts. They, they knew how to learn, they knew, but and obviously very analytical people, but 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 studying in Mexico is is much more about the content specific specialized than it is in the US. And how would you describe also the relationships between students and faculty you know in the two countries are in your experience these so that the ideal typical relationships are somewhat similar or are somewhat different? Um, in my experience, they were very different. Um, teachers in, in Mexico, well, my experience um, in very, especially them, they were very, they became friends, you know, like they would invite you to their birthday parties. <laughs> um, I remember going like to, you know, like the class went to, salsa bar and, and it was like I have to go because I have the statistics class tomorrow you know with the, the teacher you know and he was oh yeah yeah it's okay just one more beer um that never happened in the U.S. so so it was a much more um sort of personal 
I mean, and this is in general, obviously there's difference between personality, but in general, there is less of a, I think there's like this code maybe in, in the US of, of having a distance in the, in the personal lives of the students while they're your students. Um, I think that that's different. Okay. Did you consider staying in the US for your professional career? And you're nodding your head and saying no. Um, why not, if I may ask? I mean, the US is a great place. Um, as you know, I don't have to tell you all of the good, good things in terms of, of rules working. Of, you know, not always, we overestimate that also, <laughs> sometimes they don't. Um, but I always felt as the other. Hmm. Um, I had good friends, you know, I made good friends with, with obviously you always make friends with, with Latin American people, but also with, with people um, from the US and I changed my view of very ignorant view from, from Latin America or mine, I guess, a lot of people in Mexico that believe, um, you know, Americans are cold or, or they're not. They just have different ways of expressing. Um, of course, it was hard, you know, being also, it was like walking through doors, you know, and going, and the, my friend, male friend would walk and sort of the door fell on my face because it's like all my life, you know, they'll keep the door open for me. <laughs> and um, I'm a woman, you know, but anyway, um, no, it, it really was not. And, and um, I didn't want to, I, I, I needed this, both a feeling of going back to the contribution. I mean, that doesn't mean you cannot contribute from anywhere in the world. But, but to me, it was important to contribute here and to be in a place I belong. I feel I belong. It's like a tribe. <laughs> it, it's, it's like, I know, it's, it's, I know people and, and how to interact. Um, I spent time outside and it's, and it's very enriching. And with my own kids, I really pushed them to do um, post you know, graduate school outside. The Mexico, um, I think it's very important, but to me, mostly it was the place um, where I wanted to carry on my, my career. And luckily I found CIDE, which was a great place back then. And, and the network, Plus family, friends, and, and Mexico. Of course. Now, for the audience who might not be familiar with CIDE, which is not a typical university, how would you sort of characterize it and, you know, in its configuration and, you know, history and impact? In Mexico and in, in the world, I mean, it's a very prestigious public policy in particular, right? For public policy and things related to 
development, economics, political science, technology, um, etc. It's, it's one of Latin America's most prestigious uh, institutions. So how, how would you describe CIDE? That, that is a very good question that I'm very happy to answer, especially today, because it's facing such hard time. Um, so I think we have to remember how CIDE came to be. Um, it's a very small, you know, we are faculty is maybe 500. It's a very small institution um, that was funded back when Mexico it was a public funded institution that was funded when Mexico had oil um, in the 1970s. And it was funded in different paradigms back then it was neo-Keynesianism in, in economics, um, a lot of influence from, from Southern American um, expats that, that were there. But it has, I think, something that distinguishes throughout its time, because it also went through a period where um, Southern, you know, the, the, all the faculty from Southern America went back and really did not leave a school. You know, uh, they left. And, and that was a strong blow for Sila because they were leaders. There was 20, I don't remember, <clears throat> Um, you know, so many. Um, so it was a period when, when they sent as a director someone from the government and didn't work, they actually wanted to close it. And then the new, <laughs> we called him like the, the Cides Pinochet. Um, he came in and fired like, I don't know, half of the faculty and made them have a PhD. And it became after that, you know, after Vasquez left, with Carlos Elizondo, it became an institutionalized process. Institutionalized in the sense of, okay, you know, there's gonna be rules for hiring and, and there's going to be a, a institutional process of research and, and teaching and being promoted and that. So what happened, and then they also started creating bachelor's degrees. I think one thing that distinguishes CIDE from other institutions in, in Mexico. It's its mission, it's its character of, of, of being a public institution and having the mission of um, teaching and having, you know, creating capacity for young students that are very talented and yet have not had the opportunities. Now, how do you find these people? And I think that was a great challenge. And, and they did that very well. You know, went into every university and, and high school, high schools less so, but in, in outside of Mexico City and, and promoted that. And then it became self-fed, you know, word of mouth. Because once they come into CIDE, you know, we get 300 applications or so, and we accept 30 because they all have a scholarship there. They can't work. They need to be there full time. And it's amazing. I mean, it's a social mobility. They're, they spend one semester during their, their degree some, somewhere, you know, Austin or, um, you, you know, the different universities that we had alliances with. And most of them had never been in a plane. Um, 
it, that's just really amazing. And, and then the way very rigorous, very small um, group of faculty, but very dedicated to that, even learning English. So I think, I think that's really the most uh, important contribution of CDEP. So thank you for that description. Um, and the, if you had to characterize the influence that CIDE has had in the traditional disciplines in traditional universities, how, how does it sit in relation to UNAM, you know, Tech, Teso, Ibero, you know, there are many in Mexico, it's a, it's a very big, big country. So the, the traditional university system, both public and private in Mexico. I think, um, first of all, we're very small. Mm -hmm. and, and the groups. But influential, small but influential. <laughs> they also, also something very important was that many of our faculty members became um, leaders. I mean, not only thought leaders in, in terms of um, publicly media. So that gave it a lot of light. Mm -hmm. They participated in, in media and newspapers and television um, back when people watched television. Um, the one famous song is Blanco and Negro. But um, so that gave it a lot of, of light, of attention. And, and the difference with, with other universities is that just the entrance, you know, the, the admission is so hard. And then once you're in, and I, I don't think this is a good thing. Um, I, I really try not to do that with my students, but it's just, if, if, if you don't maintain an, I don't know, it would be an 8.5 average, you're gone. You cannot um, fail one class, you're gone. So there's a lot of pressure. And they become, and they really are so talented, and and you know they they they're they're great. You really learn from them. In terms of ideology, it, the econ department at CDE is very much like ITAM. It really is. It didn't used to be. Um, they they do have to take other courses from history, and now we have a history division, and um, but. I think in that sense, the political science is also, as in other in the world, has been colonialized, uh, you know, by economics, the economics framework. Um, but there are also great, you know, they have to take, um, it's called Tranco Común, you know, and, and they have people like Jean Mayet, you know, they, they have these great minds and a lot of seminars and, and uh, because we're small, we're, we're able to do this. And we have them in there, you know, they can't go anywhere. They can't work, they, 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 they are with us for a long time. So, so that's, that's, I believe, different. Okay. Now, you have done, very important research for quite some time on sort of 
economics and public policy and political economy of media, telecommunications, ICTs in the region, not just in Mexico. But they are not within a communication or media studies department, right? Um, how would you characterize from the outside of the field, but, you know, influential in the in, in your own researching what's happening in the field, how would you characterize, um, you know, the study, what you've seen as the main trends, you know, the study of telecommunication policy, political economy of media, communication, ICTs, etc., in Latin America, you know, over the past, say, quarter century, where do you see it going? What are the major gaps? Where else should the field go? Mm. That's a big question. I can I can see, for example, that specifically telecommunications regulation mm -hmm. is economics. Mm -hmm. All of the foundation are are regulatory economics. Um, Tirol, you know, the the industrial organization, basically, mm -hmm. um, and. That is a pity because, again, if you only look at that, you cannot make it happen. You cannot just make um, companies perform in the way the regular wants them to perform if you don't bring in the political economy of the whole um, thing that is happening. So we really need a much more integrated part because then the part, as, as far I don't know much about the media studies, uh, but I think that each of these components are working on their own. Um, and there is a lack of, of sharing knowledge um, within their own tools and you know, conceptual tools and methodological tools. And, and we, need, we have to do that. That cannot happen anymore. Um, today we face, for example, um, you know, the big problem of, of the five or four tech, big tech firms and their power. The, their business model is their, their input is personal data. And what are we going to do about it? There are no organization, you know, industrial organization tools only. There are some, you know, but not enough. They're, 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 it's just huge. They're becoming another nation. Um, and um, I, I think this is when not only the disciplines should really speak to, to each other, and by speaking to each other, I mean really learning about what are the results of other disciplines and incorporating them. And, and we want to, to integrate into, I mean, in reality, it's very complex. We know and we'll never be able to understand it fully. And it, with a certain level of, of closeness, but um, certainly that, I mean, it's, I think, overused. So it's the importance of interdisciplinary work. But today, especially when we look at AI, you know, and what it's doing, we have to understand different cultures, 
um, and we have to understand the regulation, but we have, you know, there's much more of a need of working together. I mean, that doesn't mean I, I have to learn media studies. It means I can talk to an expert on media studies or read, and then how do I incorporate that into my own reading or political economy or political science. But the other important thing is that, well, the internet data, if you wanna put it in, in a more concrete way, is a public good and it's a global public good. And the response has to be global. And we cannot stay in our countries and say, you know, these bad Americans or US companies that are trying to take our data. They're doing it to the whole world. And, and we have to respond, I think, as a global public good. So there's just those type of, of color. No, no, that's, that's very interesting. So, but that leads me then to another area that I, where I know you've done very important work for significant period of time, which is comparative research, research um, yes. uh, with colleagues in different places, building infrastructure for cross-national work, securing funding for that. So what are some of the main lessons that you've learned both on the institutional building side and the intellectual right, uh, side of this? You know, we talk a lot about how different we are, but I've learned that we're much more similar than we believe. And I'm not only talking about Latin American countries, I'm talking about um, countries in such as South Africa. It's very similar to many countries in, in Latin America. So um, two things just to try to put it in order to answer, hopefully your question is, um, the, the, including the funding, it, it's a place where, where we need to build an integrated agenda that obviously has, is, is fed by different national and regional contexts, but these contexts, face very similar problems. And, and institutionally today, unfortunately, what we're facing is, is a threat to democracy um, in, in certainly in Mexico. And there's the same things that I talk about with colleagues in Brazil or, or obviously other other countries. So I don't know if I answered the, the question. No, I mean, no, no, let, let, me, let me follow up. You started answering it. Um, I've been also long puzzled by the very interesting presence of similarities across countries, right? That on the face of it, one would expect much more difference or heterogeneity. Um, why do you think that is the case? Um, 
first of all, one thing that I think also may answer part of the, of the original question is is the the ideology, the cultural components of each country um, that have not led to a progressive to progress. Um, even though we do, you know, when, when we speak about ideology, for example, we have obviously a polarization in the world, um, the US, Mexico, um, more so in the US and today, but um, I think, well, and that's not what I think, you know, what I've seen in the history of, of the world of the development is that there's this pendulum that goes back between big and big government and small government. But we all go together. <laughs> and why, why is it, right? I mean, and like even broadband plans, everybody had a broadband plan, you know, mm. then Thatcherism, everybody was with small. Now, you know, we go back, back the state is back in with national, but we all do it. We privatize, we all privatize. I think it has to do, well, I mean, that this is just, it's, I, I have no answer, um, but, it, but it has to do with the influence of, of, um, of literature, of, of science, of, of you know, social sciences in, in, in many ways, how we learn and we kind of come to the point, okay, that's not working, let's look, you know, somewhere else. But I, I don't have, do you? What do you think? No, I'm puzzled by it, like you. And even if we think in terms of, you know, current political developments, the fact that there are extreme right or illiberal leaders popping up all over the world in countries with very different institutional configurations, histories, uh, you know, any of the key variables, right? From Sweden to Brazil. And um, it's not just a few outliers. Now it's become quite systemic. So, no, I was wondering, since you've done a lot of work setting up infrastructures, doing comparative work, etc., hearing uh, your insight about how much similarity there is, right? It is quite um, insightful and provocative as we think, right? Because the trend usually is single country studies and many times not really uh, problematizing even the scope conditions of one country in particular and what that means. Um, I, I think your experience is particularly um, revealing and helpful in this case. Now, um, you know, since you're approaching the end, if you, if you were given a, you know, if you have magical powers, right? And, and could be granted one wish about how you would like the study of telecommunication policies, ICT for development, this, this interdisciplinary areas of studies that cut across political economy, technology, communication, economics, development. You know, if you, if you had one wish about how you would like this area to change, what would you wish for? 
Okay, I, I think that the way we have studied or, or I studied um, does not, it, it really does not include the knowledge of so many underrepresented cultures. I mean, you were talking about Native Americans, but um, not only that, women. Um, it's a huge void in not learning and including them in, in our studies as, as just a part of an integral part. They're in many ways an afterthought. Oh yeah, there there are Native Americans, you know. The, well, Native Americans, is, is, I I would say women is like basic, basic. So a, a much more feminist approach in the sense of 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 really being inclusive and being a reflection of reality, because it's not. It's just a partial view of, of dominant groups and dominant ways of thinking. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Judith. I couldn't agree more uh, with that. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your, your experience with us. Uh, thank you to the listeners for staying with us uh, through the end. And I invite everybody to join us and listen to the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you again, Julie. Thank you. Bye. Bye. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.